Monday. Ready, what's the trouble? Oh, Lloyd, you know how stupid I am about moves. Sorry, Gary. Sorry, Brooke. It's just my usual dimness, but why do I take the things into the study? Wouldn't it be more natural if I left them on stage? No. I just thought it might be more logical somehow. No. Lloyd, I know it's rather late in the day to go into all this, but... No, Freddie, we've got several more minutes left before we open. Well, thank you, Lloyd, as long as we're not too rushed. I've never understood why he carries an overnight bag and a box of groceries into the study to look at his mail. Because they have to be out of the way for my next scene. I see that. And Freddie, my love, Selsden needs them in the study for his next scene. I see that, but... Selsden? Where is he? Is he there? Selsden! 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 Am I on? No, 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 no! Oh, I thought I heard my voice. No, no, no. Go back to sleep. You're not on for another ten pages yet. Oh, uh, all right, I see all that. Oh, no. I just don't know why I take them. Freddie Love, why does anyone do anything? Why does that other idiot go out of the front door holding two plates of sardines? I mean, I'm not getting at you, Love. Of course not, Lloyd. I mean, why do I? I mean, Jesus, when you come to think about it, why do I? Who knows? Who knows? You see, Freddie? The wellsprings of human action are deep and cloudy. Maybe something happened to you when you were a very, very, very small child that made you frightened to let go of groceries. Or it could be genetic. Yes, or it could be, you know. Could could well be. Of course, thank you. I understand all that. Freddie Love, I'm telling you, I don't know. I, I don't think the author knows. I don't know why the author came into this industry in the first place. I don't know why any of us came into it. All the same, if you could just give me a reason, I could keep in my mind. All right, I'll give you a reason. You carry those groceries into the study, Freddie, honey, because it's just slightly after midnight. And we're not going to be finished before we open tomorrow night. Correction. Before we open tonight! Welcome to Ramblin. <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> from the top, take it from the top. Okay, nice as up. Nice up, take it from the top. <clears throat> Welcome to Ramblin, an Amblin podcast. The podcast where we take a sneak peek behind the curtain of Amblin Entertainment to see what chaos and mayhem is going on backstage. I'm one half of one half of your eyes. <laughs> keep going, Katie. keep going, keep yeah, going. And I'm the other half, Josh Glenn. <laughs> and today we are very happy to be joined by. Um, let me start that again. I had a whole line prepared. <laughs> it's, it's normally smoother. Is it? <laughs> today we welcome to our troupe the woman behind our artwork, a fellow Warwick film grad, and my lover. <laughs> Emily Tafen, welcome to Rambling. Hi, Emily. thank you for having me, lover. <laughs> I do think this is the first time that two people on a podcast have had sex. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen often. I don't think it's come up before. Back in my brains. 
For me, it's hard to know who the third wheel is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is nice to be joining my husband's husband. <laughs> my boyfriend's boyfriend. The yeah, I was here first. <laughs> uh, now, you did create our artwork, and we're very mm. forever grateful for you for doing that. Um, we couldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> we could have tried, but uh, failed. <laughs> I at least I sketched it for you and you turned it into a reality. Um, but what besides the logo, what does Amblin mean to you, Emily Tatham? Uh, if I'm totally honest, when you boys started, you know, with the idea for this, I was like, I kind of know it as the thing before movies where it's like E.T. shows up mm-hmm. for a little bit. And that is the maximum that I knew. If you said Avenue, I'd been like, oh yeah, the little E.T. man that flies before other movies. Um, (laughs) And then you were like, that's like a whole thing called like production. And I was like, cool. Okay. Different (laughs) things. Okay, cool. Love this. Love this. So now I'm kind of more attuned into that world. And now I pay attention to them more. And I do think my life is richer as a result. And nice. occasionally, <laughs> occasionally now I watch a movie and you go, this is an Amblin one. And I go, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what what ones were you kind of aware of? You dropped a few in there. Were there any that you can, kind of can remember being steadfast fixtures as you were growing up? Because it's kind of a big thing for this podcast. It's a big old nostalgia. Yes. Trip. Yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> yes, I was aware of Amblin, but I'm not sure I would have like attributed the films to Amblin. Like, I'm not sure as a <laughs> child I would have been aware of this thing called Amblin. I would have just been like, these movies slap and I want to watch them over and over again. Uh, what movies did I like a lot? Well, what are some Amblin movies? <laughs> <laughs> uh, vamp, vamp a little bit while I get the photography yeah. up. So obviously we'll start with Jurassic Park. Uh, big, yeah, obviously watched that a lot. Was obsessed with that. Had to like watched it for eight, watched it like on repeat for quite a while. Then had to stop watching it because suddenly I found it too scary. And then I had to like... Cross the threshold. Yeah, and then I kind of circled back round to loving it again. But there was like a couple of years there where I was just like, no, absolutely can't be, can't, can't be dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other Amblin movies oh, see, this is why I should put my glasses on um, <laughs> other Amblin down movies very slowly, so. uh, yeah Back to the Future mm-hmm. that was that was the mainstay for me um, oh absolutely none of these 80s ones Who uh, <laughs> Framed Roger Rabbit loved that Land Before Time loved that me and my brother used to watch that on VHS a lot Dad that was one we <laughs> yeah. you're always talking uh, about Dad yeah lo- dad. I love Dad Dad and the money pit you know oh wow I can't forget Continental Divide that, that was a real mainstay you know Sunday night around the around the family fire is there some is, is there something of a vibe that you kind of attribute what if you had to describe it as a vibe what you what would you land on describe the vibe um, I would land on it as um, family friendly I would also use adjectives such as lovely uh, and yeah for me it's like a big so yeah they're like family fun movies mm-hmm. that's like the vibe that I have whether that's true or not is an entirely different I mean, for the, for the most largely part, kind of, it's the occasional yeah I mean Schindler's List is coming up that, mm. I'm not sure that kind of fits under the I've never seen Schindler's bones, List oh, well, there you go. because yeah. when are you in the mood to watch Schindler's <laughs> List it's not one to just pop on lightly mm-hmm. I dare say speaking of heavy emotions 
You're a bit of a crier, aren't you, Info? We had this Oh, I'm a weeper, Josh. Mm-hmm. I'm a weeper. And I know we spoke about this the other day in preparation for this. You said you were going to re-watch E.T., The Extraterrestrial, oh. to see once and for all if you did, in fact, weep at it. Have you done that? No. But I'll tell you why. And you will, agree. <laughs> and you will go, no, that's fair. This is the segue. So... <laughs> so uh, well, last two weeks ago, I was in the you know in the living room having a lovely time, and Andy was like, "Oh, I've got to watch this movie for this podcast that I do. Don't know if you've heard of it." And I was like, "Oh yeah, that thing you do with Josh. Wow, I didn't know it's a podcast. That's really fun. You two have been spending a lot of time together." Uh, and then you were like, "Okay," and you put it on, and it was the first forty-five minutes of it, and I was like, "I will never." watch a piece of media piece of content with a child in it ever again uh, and that and what I watched was the first 45 minutes of Hook and as a result every time we went to watch E.T. I'd look at Ali and just be like I just, I just I'm not in the mood to watch a child I'm just not in the mood to watch a child have do anything um, and so I haven't watched it you stop believing Emily yeah. you I no stopped longer believing. believe I stopped believing big time so as a result I don't know if I cry at E.T. Yeah. At uni, though, we used to have an ET drinking. ET and my initials, Josh. Fun fact. Fun fact about me. <laughs> um, have you got a pen? <laughs> and, and at uni, um, there was a fun little drinking game, which we, which I definitely didn't um, instigate, but occurred, for, occurred, <laughs> occurred regularly for three years. And that was when anyone sang the ET theme tune at me, I had to down whatever drink I was drinking. And it doesn't Ba-na-na. seem very fair. <laughs> so, in a way, like the kind of like flashbacks I get to that yeah. does make me cry a little bit. Oh, uh, well, that's so uh, yeah. I, I, I cry thinking about some of my university antics as well. <laughs> what I found about that on the MacBook. Uh, but as much as we could spend a good long while sticking our claws into Hook, we're not here to talk about Hook today, are we? What are we, what are we here to talk about today, Andrew? We are here to talk about Peter Bogdanovich's 1992 adaptation of Michael Frayne's. Michael Frey. Frey. <laughs> Play Noises Off. And today, I'm taking the synopsis. But because I was a little lazy boy, Josh Glenn wrote the synopsis <laughs> and I'm reading it. Have you tweaked it at all? Or is I have it, tweaked Have it. you tweaked have it a little bit? It, yeah. I've got my version right here, so I'm going to read my version <laughs> while you read your version. Can I guess which see. of the tweaks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Andy, please tell us. What is Noises Off about? Gladly. All right, Noises Off! Noises off! <laughs> this is such a silly episode. I don't know if we're going to make it through. I've got to do the production context. I don't think I'm going to make it. I, I see no- us. I said, noises off! <laughs> Sorry. It's the Broadway opening night for Nothing On. A fishy farce directed, <laughs> directed by the te- temperamental Lloyd Fellows. Played by one Michael Caine. That was a hit in Britain and is keen to make its equal a splash in the US of A. As doors close and the performance begins, Lloyd's anxiety gets the better of him and he runs away from the theatre, certain that the show is going to be a bomb. We then flash back to the final dress rehearsal before the show's debut in Des Moines, Iowa. As the cast runs through the first act, certain red flags are thrown up. Fading star Dottie Oatley, Carol Burnett, can't remember what to do with the sardines. Hot-tempered Gary Lejeunet, played by John Ritter, is overly protective of his older co-star and lover. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sweet, lovely, naive Freddie Dallas, played by Christopher Reeves, is literal-minded to the point of distraction. The inexperienced Brooke Ashton, played by Nicolette Sheridan, has no brain function beyond uh, memorising her lines and losing her contacts. (laughs) The dependable Belinda Blair, Marilou Henner, will do anything to keep things rolling on, but also loves a bit of gossip. (laughs) (laughs) Sossel Vet Selsden Mowbray, played by Denholm Elliott, is a walking, whiskey-guzzling, two-ronnie sketch show. And despairing stagehands Poppy Taylor, played by Julie Haggerty, and Tim Tim Allgood, played by Mark Lynn Baker, are overworked, overstretched, and one can assume underpaid. Problems between the cast members start to bubble over as the play heads on tour en route to New York, with a chaotic matinee performance in Miami Beach barely holding itself together, until finally the show completely derails in spectacular fashion as all their infidelities, insecurities, and general incompetencies burst forth during a fateful night on a Cleveland stage. Will the cast and crew be able to reconcile their issues ahead of their Broadway debut? Or is it doomed to slip on that proverbial sardine and fall down those proverbial stairs forever? That's noises off. There we go. That was uh, that was a nice little collaboration. There. It was. <laughs> I enjoyed that. What do you think, Andy? Changed. Well, I forgot halfway through that both of you um, have the same sense of humour. So, um, honestly, it's interchangeable. Couldn't tell. Couldn't tell at all. <laughs> Which one of you is responsible for a fishy farce? Well, I wrote stinky. I wrote a stinky farce, and Andy changed stinky to fishy. fishy. <laughs> more specific. Andy's more specific in his humour than I am. Uh, I believe it was Lon- London's London. London smash sex farce, actually. Uh, London, London smash. Sex. Even like the Wikipedia Textually. page describes it as a dreadful a farce. Dreadful. I, was like, I thought the point is it's meant to be a little very bit good. Yeah. No, I thought it's meant to be a little bit. Yeah, naff, that's why people like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, 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 I want to delve into that yeah. a little bit later on. But for now, we'll be delving. John. This is we'll the part delving. where we talk about what this means to you. So I'll go first quickly because I have nothing to offer on this. I hadn't heard of the movie, even less so the play on which it's based, Mm. uh, before this podcast. And I'm thinking you're the same, Andrew. Yeah, I'd heard of the play, but I never knew there was a movie of it until I looked into the filmography of Amelin Entertainment. And Mm. the only reason I knew it was a play is because it is a Tafen family favourite. Well... Take the microphone, Emily. <laughs> well, I've seen the play, not one, not two, Josh, but three times. <laughs> it's one of those... I think we first saw it at the old Vic in 2012. And I remember, like, all of us, like, absolutely, like, gut-busting laughter. Mm-hmm. And I, my little brother laughed so loud. And I think he must have been in the peak of his, like, um, you know, a teenage... Uh, phase where you're not mm-hmm. not excited about anything. Um, and Tell me something your parents are taking you to. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. And he his like laughter was like four times as loud as like everyone else's, and you just couldn't <laughs> stop. And as a result, any time we see it on, we're like, we've got to go. Yeah. And I love it, and I do think it is like an incredible play. And I was very excited to find out that there was a movie of it. So when Andy said, "Here's the list of Amblin films." I went, oh, look, noise is off. Yeah. Fabulous. I'll have that. <laughs> well, sorry, well, you were down from the very, very start, yeah. I believe, on our Excel spreadsheet. Well, who else has seen it three times? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it three times, Josh. But you were wow. never... 
it wasn't until we went through this list of films that you knew that there was a movie. No. Oh, so you didn't. Even, not only had you not seen it, but you didn't know there was even didn't, a film in the I first place. I didn't even place. know there was a film. Yeah. Wow. Produced for the tenth anniversary. <laughs> oh, good for them. <laughs> and I believe it's going on tour again this year in October. I think because so. it's the fortieth anniversary of the play. Oh well, make it four. Out. Make it a fourth. Oh, time let's all. Well, I have I'm, to. I'm very keen to see it. Let's all go. In it's uh, yeah. Primordial form. <laughs> I've also seen it. Oh, I've also seen it. Uh, where you stay behind afterwards, you get a little Q and A with the actors. Oh. <laughs> so I've got special behind the scenes insights uh, from actors who have actually been in a production of Noise. Is well. it the actors? Tell me a guest who's been more prepared, Josh. Tell me a single guest. <laughs> <laughs> were the actors as themselves, or were they playing the actors within the play? Uh, so they were the actors playing the actors who were playing. Characters, right, the okay. characters. So it was that's like cool. one last that is cool. That's cool. <laughs> it's like how on the Spinal so Tap DVD Freddy, they do basically. the. <laughs> Sweet um, lovely Freddy. <laughs> oh, oh, Freddy. Well, we can talk about talk about Christopher Reeves. I knew you'd thing. love Freddy. Oh. <laughs> As we were watching it, I thought Josh would love Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> also, to say this now, best English accent out of them all. It's very good. Yeah, he's got like. <laughs> Um, speaking of, of English things, let's just <laughs> so that's not quite as graceful as your segue into the hook bashing earlier. Right? <laughs> uh, now for the dry part. <laughs> All Tom Ford. <laughs> oh, don't you worry. We'll, we'll find a way. <laughs> so let's just take, let's wind the clock back to 1982, 10 years before the film came out, to when the play was first birthed. It was written in 1982 by Michael Frayne, or is it Fry? I've said it so many times. Please write into ramblin about amblin at gmail.com if you know it's pronounced in a different way. Frayne or Frayne? I think you do it loads of different times throughout the podcast, and then whichever one is right, we'll just get Andy to replace all of the other (laughs) ones. You'll just hear me coming in just going, (laughs) Fry. Or (laughs) Frayne. Uh, so it was written in 1982 by Michael Frayne, and it was conceived Fine. a decade. <laughs> How long have we been recording for? <laughs> About 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he conceived of the idea a decade earlier after he'd written The Fast, The Two of Us, for Lynn Redgrave. And it was whilst watching that show from the wings that he realised it was funnier uh, from behind the stage and in front of the stage. And he thought one day, I must write a farce from behind. Which is how I imagine Michael Frayne sounds mm-hmm. when he speaks. So he wrote a prototype, which was a one-act play called Exits in 1977. Uh, it was very short-lived in its performance, but his associate, the theatre producer, Michael Corden, encouraged him to expand it into what eventually became Noises Off. Uh, it premiered at Lyric Theatre Hammersmith in London in 1982, directed by Michael Blake. What was playing there now? Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really I, I can't um, situate myself in the West End f- theatre wise. I'm not much of a theatre boy. They're all the same. Yeah. Which was I love legitimate theatre. Lyric Harris Hammersmith. Lyric, yeah. Lyric Hammersmith. Lyric Hammersmith. And should we go? Scandal Town. Oh, that sounds great. And a reverent satire for our times. I'm in. <laughs> I, I, I imagine they take no prisoners. So anyway, yeah, that's where it premiered in 1982. Directed by Michael Blakemore and starring Patricia Rutledge as Dottie, Paul Eddington as Lloyd, and Nikki Henson as Gary. Uh, following this, it was transferred to the Savoy Theatre in the West End, where it ran until Lovely 1987 theater. with five successive casts. What's playing there? Oh, I think oh. that's Cock, right? No, that's the Ambassador. Cock. 
Savoy is the one that's in the te- hotel. We saw. Dirty I don't know what's playing now, there. but I did see Legally Blonde the musical there, and my god, what a musical! <laughs> Pretty Woman the musical wow. is playing at the Savoy. Oh my currently. god. <laughs> We're really plugging so the no accounting for shows. Well, you know, post, post COVID, <laughs> don't really need help. They're doing fine. I think. Um, so yes, after winning the Evening Standard Award for Best Comedy, it opened on Broadway at the Brooks Atkinson Theatre on the 11th of December, 1983. Do you want me to look up what's playing there? Too? Nah, I mean, <laughs> there's a whole ocean between us and that. Any American listeners, if, if there indeed are Google any. It, it is our second best territory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that production was again directed by Blakemore, who crossed the Atlantic to Helmut over there, and this time starred Dorothy Luden, or Loudon. Oh, I don't want to start this again. No, I'll I would just Loudon. skip the names, Dorothy jobs. Loudon as Dottie, Victor Garber yeah. as Gary. Oh, hello. Yes, yeah, so it's a good thing I didn't skip that one. That's very exciting. I do like Victor Garber. Uh, Brian Murray as Lloyd, Jim Piddick as Tim. He was in Titanic. <laughs> Mr. Andrews is here. Oh, <laughs> I, I just mouthed at Andy after you said Victor Garber. I was like, I don't know who that is. And Andy mouthed back, actor. Like, yeah, Andy, I know he's an actor. He's I stood a bit. <laughs> oh, and, and some other people. Uh, this production ran for 553 performances and Tony Award nominations for Best Play and for Blake, Moore, Rush and Seal and won a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Ensemble. Naturally, a film adaptation was inevitable. Uh, Frame was asked by various British producers to adapt the play into a screenplay as far back as when it was back still in, in London. Back in yeah, the early 80s. Back in the early 80s. Back in 82 or early 83 before it moved to New York. Says Frame, I was very eager to do it, but could not see any way for it to be done. In fact, the movie is virtually the same as the play, with a new bit at the end and the beginning. It's shot with great bravura. Whether people will like it or not, I don't know. But, it's, but Bogdanovich had a pretty good go of it. Uh, and I'm moving the setting to America. What's that? I just said, nice mic. Oh. <laughs> you, he just, just seems very genial and quite like, like genial <laughs> The things I've read, in the interviews I read, he seems quite nice. On <laughs> uh, moving the setting to America, he said, it would be easier, I felt, for an American producer to set it up with an American cast. And it'd be better if their struggles with British accents and style were part of the action. The policy seems to have paid off handsomely. The film is most perfectly cast, with quite superlative comic actors. Again, nice mic. So I think now's quite a good time to just sort of take a little, a slight sideways step into Mr. Bogdanovich, who we lost but two, three months ago. Yeah. The... Just after Christmas, wasn't it? Not long after. Yeah. And who's a filmmaker that I hadn't really... I'd, I'd recently read um, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, so mm-hmm. I knew... And obviously you know you can see him in his little crevasse. You've yeah. got that image in your head on every single <clears throat> making of documentary. On every it's got quite a distinctive voice. No, it's not it at all, is it? No, it's very hard to do. It's very, I've tri- I did try workshopping one, it's very hard to do. You know, it's kind of like... <laughs> it's kind of like Scorsese, but if several octaves lower. <laughs> Scorsese up here. Bredovich was more down here. More What's down. the picture? <laughs> more down, more down. Bogdan- uh, and anyway, anyway, by the by, how cut familiar cut, are you cut. guys with Bogdanovich before? Pretty familiar. This. I've seen the key ones. The key, so... those first four. So t- is Target, Target? Yeah, Target. Target to I haven't 69. seen Targets, I don't think. I've not um, seen Target. I've seen uh, Last Picture. Mm-hmm. I've seen What's Up Doc. I've seen uh, Paper Moon. I'm I'm 0 for 4 currently. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Mask that he did uh, in the 80s. Oh, yeah. With, uh, with, uh, I'm very aware of his whole anger around that. 
because they didn't let him have the Bruce Springsteen songs that he wanted. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> very relatable. Oh yeah, <laughs> to have. But they have since been put back in. Yeah, uh, and I also very aware of him from particularly as like one of those kind of like great Hollywood friendships that you read, random yeah. Hollywood friendships you read about is him and Orson Welles. Yeah. And how much they would just like get on the phone and just have chats as <laughs> yeah. about what they were making. Yeah. And I, I just love, love this little anecdote I heard of like, apparently when they were just chatting once and they, Peter Bogdanovich said, oh, my least favorite film of yours is The Trial. And so, my boy, that is also my least favorite film of mine. <laughs> and then Bogdanovich would then talk about how much he did like The Trial uh, in interviews and then apparently Orson Welles then called him up and said, it's fine when you tell me you don't like it, but please don't tell anyone else. If anyone asks you, it's a brilliant picture. <laughs> it's not about Orson Welles either. You can workshop that a bit more. It hurts more. me, dear boy. <laughs> the French, the French wine. And he was like, ah, oh, Orson, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he never did again. <laughs> he only shares that anecdote. <laughs> it's already out there. Yeah. It's good That's anecdote. Um, but Bogdanovich, I mean, he's had a very spotty spotty life so if you guys will indulge me i'll just do a little bit of a little bit of a dive into where he came from what makes him tick how he got to where he is in 1992 mm. when he made and it kind of relates noises to a lot off. of the origin points yeah exactly because it kind of sprung before. he was part he became part of the sort of the brat era i yeah. guess he was slightly before spielberg and mm-hmm. those guys he was sort of part of the coppola and the freaking yeah. like maybe a year or two above in school years the Spielberg. Anyway, they came from a similar mm-hmm. Petri dish. So he began life uh, as an obsessive con- consumer of film. Uh, much to our joy, I'm sure, Andrew, he kept a record of every single film he saw on index cards, uh, complete with reviews, <laughs> from the age of 12. Yes. So from did, 1952 exactly until 1970, <laughs> he kept an index card of everything that he'd seen. With it. So it's like a... a, a a primitive letterbox, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it does behind. not surprise me that you're obsessed with him. Yeah. Now I know that piece of information. <laughs> he purportedly saw as many as 400 films a year, which I think is more than I managed last year. What did you get to oh, last boy. year? I don't remember. Yeah. It was three. I think it was 300 it was 300 something, wasn't something. it? You were over 350. It was, uh, oh yeah, so not, not too far away from there. Yeah. I should start wearing a crevasse then. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love the mood. Um, Do you mean crevasse? Yeah. Cravat. Oh yeah, not cravat. Egg on my face. Can you? That's why you need a cravat. Can you record? Oh, I don't know anymore. Let me give you a clean one. I give you one. Cravat. Can you just place that over the times I said crevasse previously? I feel like a fool. No, keep the crevasse. I'm keeping all of this. It's fitting. Go on, Josh. Tell us more about how you should wear a crevasse. After graduating from school, he began work as a film <laughs> critic and a film programmer for MoMA in New York City, the Museum of Modern Art, where he programmed influential retrospectives of his idols, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, and Orson Welles, who would become a big fixture of his life met when he moved to LA. Like, really young yeah. age, didn't he? And he, he was very much taken under their wing once he went out west. Uh, he moved to LA in 66. Like Like, much like Fievel. <laughs> <laughs> but less annoying than Fievel. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'm angry again now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So he moves out there because uh, he wanted to follow in the footsteps of his Kaid cinema predecessors, uh, Truffaut and Goddard, etc., and turn the critic mind into the directing mind. So he took his wife Polly Platt, who was a key collaborator in many of his films, helping him at a script level and working as a production designer for the first 
I believe it was four. There's quite a correlation between mm. when they parted ways and when his stock started to fall in terms of... He was a man of many muses, was Bogdanovich. <laughs> we're going to go through a couple of those. Uh, so he got his early break when he met Roger Corman at a screening, and the two began talking, and pretty soon he was offered a directing job. Uh, of the experience... <laughs> That's how it went back then. <laughs> oh, I just met this man, now I'm directing movies. Fabulous. That's yeah. my that's my that's my impression. <laughs> the Roger that's... Corman School of Filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. Really oh, yeah. once more. Just speaking, yeah, speaking to this bloke. Uh, yeah, he's giving me lots of money. I'm making a movie. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, I've done it before. Ro- wasn't a lot of money if it was a Roger <laughs> Corman picture. <laughs> if we were in, in Hollywood in the late sixties and, and we were sort of we muscled our way into press screenings and stuff, we could talk to Corman and get a picture deal. Do you reckon we could? Mm. I don't know. I could see it. <laughs> I really could. I could see it. Got an idea for a picture. Imagine. Not much. <laughs> I reckon well, Roger Corman would have loved whatever you're going to pitch because you're, I, I you're going to have shrinking in it. I reckon he'd love shrinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whether you progress past that, I don't know. And shrinking makes the bulbs look bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Segue back into this from that. (sighs) (laughs) Right. Be good. So he spoke to a bloke and he's got a film. Tell me more. Roger Corman would have gone for that. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. No, we would have made it. (laughs) Of that experience, Bogdanovich said, uh, I went from getting laundry to directing the picture in uh, three weeks. Altogether, I worked 22 weeks pre production, shooting, second unit, cutting, dubbing, and I haven't learned as much since. How's that? How long ago it wasn't was too it? bad. No, it was close enough. It was the closest we're going to get, I think. <laughs> so he had like a, a stock footage movie that he made under a pseudonym, and then mm-hmm. there was an AFI commissioned John Ford documentary. But those aside, his, his uh, debut proper was 1968's Targets, which is about a shooting spree, and it starred mm. Boris Karloff in repurposed footage right. from the Terror. Which is they uh, had to fulfill a contract. Yeah, they had to that, use right? X amount of, uh, of footage from a previous film, and then he managed to coax a really good late career performance out of Boris Karloff. And uh, it's really good. It's not anywhere streaming free, but you can rent it from you know all mm-hmm. good retailers that Andy reads out at the end of the day. Rakuten TV. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> does, he ever, does he roll his R's for you? I love when he rolls his R's. Not enough. Yeah. Not enough. Uh, he followed this with the last picture show, which earned eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Director, sure. and netted one for Cloris Leachman and Ben Johnson in the supporting categories. Good film. Jeff Bridges got an Oscar nom as well for got that. Got a nom, yeah. Early, yeah. early debut. It also launched the career of 21-year-old model Sybil Shepherd, uh, which in turn ended Bogdanovich's marriage to Platt. Marriage to Platt. So he was oh. he was a man he liked chasing the, uh, the younger model, as it were. In this case, literally, because she was a model. <laughs> and younger, and younger. So. Okay. Uh, he followed this up with What's Up Doc, which was a screwball throwback starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. 
And then Paper Moon, which again starred O'Neill and his 10-year-old daughter, Tatum. Both of which I just... I watched yeah, brilliant. I watched the first four in preparation for this so I hadn't seen any Bogdanovich's. My God. Those, la- la- those the latter, latter two are close to oh, perfect movies. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. I, I, you'd, I, you'd be a big fan of them, actually. Very much so. Like okay. What's Up Dark is very much... You can sort of see how that bleeds into I l- this. I love this. a bit of Streisand. Oh, she's cool. Yeah. Oh, I love a bit of Streisand. You first so meet her, me up. she's in these sort of loose, baggy hustler clothes and she's leaning against a counter, chewing on a carrot and she goes, what's up, Doc? That's, um, that's and her introduction. Talk to me in about, because at some point she's going to wear a gorgeous gown. Talk to me about it. <laughs> this gorgeous Are we talking gown? feathers? Are we talking yeah. beads? Oh, uh, the woman knows how to wear a gown. My she God. Wear, she can wear them with gowns. The days. <laughs> Uh, Paper Moon was financed and produced through the director's company, which uh, Bogdanovich co-founded with mm. Francis Ford Coppola and William Friedkin. The success of Paper Moon, though, uh, it emphasised tensions between the directors over the profit share arrangement because that was doing much better than other yeah, filmmakers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was Bogdanovich's Daisy Miller in '74, which proved to be the company's last picture. His next two films, At Long Last Love and Nickelodeon, were critical and commercial bombs. Uh, and 1979's Saint Jack was a modest return to critical form, but a similar box office flop. Mm. And it also marked the end of his romance with Sybil Shepherd. So he, well, he'd gone they from being... They good friends, though. I think they worked together since, because yeah. obviously she was in Texasville like, mm-hmm. 10 or so years later on. But like, he, he'd gone from the Wunderkind, who did Last Picture Show, eight nominations, second picture, to this guy who had a series of flops. You know, bit of a... Bit of a hair but will he point. work again, Josh? Tell us. <laughs> well, he quickly started dating Dorothy Stratton, which is quite an unpleasant chapter in his life. He was cast in his 1981 film, They All Laughed. Unfortunately, she was involved, or she couldn't quite shake her estranged ex-husband, Paul Snyder. And in the year 1980, he murdered her. And this sort of kickstarted a very dark chapter in his life, which moved him away from film for a little bit um and they were, they, i've read like digging into this a little bit there's a lot of really sort of uh gutter journalism style like there's movies about it that were made within the year of her murder yeah the which seems family so and Bogdanovich sued before yeah that. i can't remember the name of that movie because he with well, the star 80 that um bob fossey did right yeah, then there was it that was, was it, it they, one? they sued bob fossey yeah yeah, yeah. Because he wrote, um, while he wasn't making films, he wrote a book, The Killing of the Unicorn in 1984, That's which it, detailed yeah. the tragedy. But I don't think that en- inspired any of the films that were made yeah. about it. But Oh, that's really gross. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah, pretty fucked up. And he gets a little bit grosser. Um, so oh. he, he, he took over the distribution for They All Left, and he released it in 1981, a year after Dorothy Stratton's death. And then he had to file bankruptcy by 1985 because that endeavour was the final financial blow for him, really. Not the last time, though, that he filed bankruptcy. Uh, On December 30th, 1988, the 49-year-old Bogdanovich married Dorothy's 20-year-old sister, Louise, who Hugh Hefner accused Bogdanovich of seducing while she was 13. So that's uh, kind of... I did not Mark. know we were going to get oh, into this, these well, topics <laughs> in this podcast the... about a silly little play. <laughs> we got the silly little... Well, I think it's important context for where no. he is in 1992. I'm learning, Josh. I'm <laughs> learning. <laughs> anyway, so yes, he released Mask in 85 to acclaim, like Andy mentioned, um, but the last picture show sequel, Texasville, flopped in 1990 and it exposed problems that he had with studios and that he wasn't given final say. He couldn't include the, 
the Bruce Springsteen songs. Bob uh, Seger and he, was there. And Bob Seger, the replacement. He released the director's cut about 10 years later with his Bruce Springsteen songs. Yeah, they didn't tell him either. They, they, he didn't know it was happening. Then heard that they had been put out and he was like, oh, okay. Uh, so he directed Legally Yours in uh, 1988, then he noises off in 1992. Then the following year, in 1993, he did The Thing Called Love before declaring bankruptcy again in 1997. So this is not a good run. It's a bit of a fall from grace from one of New Hollywood's yeah. crown, uh, crowning jewels. But let's just wind it back a little bit to 1992. And so that's where he is when he's brought on to do Noises Off. So he's, <sighs> he's had uh, a series of failures. He lost his much younger wife, married her even younger sister and uh, was at this point in his career a little bit of a, a guy for hire I guess, he just needed to build back up his yeah. financial profile uh, and when he was on Noises Off he helped assemble a stellar cast including Michael Caine, Christopher Reeve Julia Haggerty, John Ritter and Denham Elliott in what proved to be his final role uh, he originally offered the role of Dottie to Audrey Hepburn before it went to Carol Burnett instead. I don't know why it didn't work out with Audrey Hepburn, but mm. can you see that? Can you see Hepburn in, in the Dottie role? I can see her camping it up big time. Yeah, not in. She must have been very. Ill. Must have been ill health. That'll be why. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> she died in '93. Around that time, was it? Wasn't long after Always, and that yeah. was three years before this. So she, yeah, she can't have been. Apparently, Annie Potts was also meant to be in the film, but was in a car accident and was replaced by uh, Marilou Henner. Um, Who I liked. I he was very good, yeah. Uh, yeah so Bugdon a bitch. Holy cow. Yeah. Uh, so he said his intention was to get the audience on a kind of ride and not stop. Somebody once wrote a book about silent films called Spellbound in the Darkness. I like that phrase. That's the goal. When movies <laughs> are at their best, they're spellbinding. They're like a dream. Orson Welles called them a ribbon of dreams. I think that's very accurate. If you can get everybody on your wavelength or on your dream, it's a wonderful feel. He purposefully kept a lower profile throughout filming because he didn't want his personal baggage and his drama to overshadow what, like you said, is a silly little farce, a silly little bit of fun at the cinema. So he he tried to keep his involvement to a minimum. And as a result, Frame Frame was broadly happy with the film, uh, but he was annoyed that the filmmakers, or Bogdanovich particularly, insisted on no, uh, nothing on the play within the film having a happy ending and being a success in the context of the film that was tacked on from the stage version and I'm sure Emily you can bring more perspective to this having seen the stage version but it does in the movie it does feel like a little bit of a ah, it's okay everyone was happy in the end it's all good and they all you know walked off together I into the sunset this, but I'm sure we'll yeah I've got, I've got I've got thoughts I've got feelings <laughs> and yes, yeah, so the film was not a, a success financially, earning less than a million in its opening week, mm. uh, and it got mixed. Well, it, it says on, on I mean, it's got a sixty-one percent Rotten Tomatoes score, but all like the big, the big outlets were pretty scathing. He got two oh, thumbs down yes. from Siskel and Ebert. Uh, our old friend Vincent Camby said, you know, most of them, you know, pretty much said that it just fundamentally doesn't work as a film. It's so linked intrinsically to the stage that any attempt to um you know bring it to the screen were you know doomed to fail knocking 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 upstairs oh my god there's something in the linen closet oh it's you 
Is it you? With that in mind, I think that's quite a good little springboard to a wider conversation. And I'll, I'll aim this towards Emily, first of all, because you've this seen it are. three times on the stage. Yeah. How do you think this succeeds as an adaptation of Noises Off? Oh, God. Well, watching the film, I just thought to myself, my goodness, what a good play this is. <laughs> well, I can't believe I'm watching a very average filming of a very, very good play. Yeah. I would agree with all of the like big critics at the time. Hello. Uh, because I agree. I think it's a fundamentally unadaptable text. And actually, what they what we've got is like the equivalent of uh, seeing at home and watching like Hamilton or Disney Plus. <laughs> you go, oh, that was good. I wish I'd seen that live. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about it. But I would say that the 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 play is so good that it's not like is by no means a bad film. I had a really mm. good time watching it because yeah. I love this story and I love all of the jokes and I love it. But like as a movie, I don't know. Mm. I'm not sure it's a great. I'm not sure it's a great picture. <laughs> what do you think, Andrew? As someone who hasn't seen the show, yeah, like it's weird because with a lot of like stage to film adaptations, they they only ever really fall into one bracket or another, right? It's either they've whoever's making it has found a really surefire way to kind of take this thing and mm. make it work on the big screen. You just think of kind of like countless Shakespeare adaptations that work yeah. so well on a on, on a cinematic level, I mean, we've had two Macbeths in the last five, six years. It just goes to show how much mm-hmm. that can translate. And then there are others that just are either so intrinsically tied to the kind of format of state of a stage play, like Noises Off, or something where locations are so limited that you do begin to wonder why. I think Alice, something like Fences, which is a very well acted, very well written. Yeah play and as a film it's quite stodgy (laughs) (laughs) point and shoot at least in this he he, in places tries to match their movements it it does try to do a lot of um tries to get certain like patterns Mm -hmm. of rhythm into camera movement but in a way that doesn't feel that obtrusive to the fact that it is a camera capturing it like you'll get the odd little kind of pan over to see what's going on down the wings yeah. during one one moment or like there was one particular bit where i was like well this clearly doesn't work in a movie setting and it's when they do the joke of um forgotten their name but the when they do the joke of the yeah, brooke, brooke losing her brooke. contacts yeah for the first time everyone stops what they're doing and like all right everyone be careful lift your feet and just yeah. walk around carefully and there's just this bit where the camera holds in it yeah for like a good five ten seconds yeah. of all them doing this silly walk going around looking for a contact lens sat on the stage watching live actors do yeah that. i do not doubt it is hilarious <laughs> yeah. yeah watching actors on your tv doing that and it just being silent where you would hear raucous laughter from audience members around you Again, yeah maybe it would have worked better in the cinema my instinct is it didn't yeah um just it's just there's a couple of moments like that within this that kind of, I kind of go like all right yeah no that's, <laughs> that's not worked I felt like all the way during Act One the camera mm. was really static 
And it was like, because part of a farce is, and what makes a farce so good is you've got to teach the audience the kind of geography of the stage. So when people are coming through doors really quickly, you go, right, that's the study, that's the kitchen, that's the bedroom. And you kind of know where everyone is. So when they kind of burst through the doors in various states of undress, you kind of anticipate where everyone is. And that's kind of part of the joke. So in the first act, the camera's really still. And I was like, oh God, okay. Well, it's a bit boring. Because then you're just watching... A black, an empty stage as you said with no like laugh track no nothing just like a sighing Michael Caine <laughs> and then it's just as, like and at all times it feels like because the camera's still you then have to get seven actors who it's like an ensemble cast they're all as famous as each other on screen all the time yeah. at once so ev- almost every shot in that like first act has like seven people squished into yeah. it <laughs> in various different formats and I found myself getting kind of annoyed by it and then we went into act two and the camera got really frenetic and then I found myself getting annoyed by that so I was like well if you can't win by keeping the camera still and you can't win by yeah. Yeah. moving the camera around then maybe you shouldn't have made it into I a think, film at all I, I think I, I, I really quite enjoyed the film and I particularly enjoyed the performances because you can't really yeah. lose because they're clearly yeah. relishing what they're doing but I think the fundamental I th- there's a, a cap to how good a film version of Noises Off can be I think in that so much of what work, what must work about the play and I haven't seen this but I have seen the play that goes wrong yeah. which yeah, seems seen indebted seen massively to this like exactly yeah stuff, so, so does... you watch that live and there was a TV version of that as well which doesn't have doesn't the same work. power but the, I think the thing is so you watch a, a, a regular play a non-fast regular play there's a perverse part of you that does hope something goes wrong I think mm. I hope I'm not wrong in, in being a bit of a schadenfreude thirster but there's some part of you does kind of think it will be kind of you know, intriguing if this is yeah. uh, it's sort of School of Rock once and something did go wrong in that and it was horrible so you never want it to actually happen <laughs> but the element of danger is a big part I think of yeah. it. particularly when it comes to a show that's designed to have a show within it that goes wrong so you've got the first level where everything has to work as on paper then the second level is things have to go wrong in a very controlled way that is by design so you've got this yeah. double danger things have to go wrong perfectly right. <laughs> yeah right so you've got this double danger that works when you're in a live environment because it's such a such a tightrope walk and it's, i think especially watching this film and once you see the first act in the dress rehearsal you see how you get the lay of the land and you see how things m- map out geographically you also get a sense of how things should go yeah. by the book so when things start going wrong in, in the second and third iterations it's satisfying because you know how it should be playing and you can spot how the drama bleeds into the foreground and kind of fucks things up a little bit but the the thrill of when that pays off is so linked with the experience of it being live like when you watch the player that goes wrong and things go wrong perfectly and it's such a controlled jolt of of like safe schadenfreude yeah. you, you get the schadenfreude for the actors within the context of the fiction but you get the joy of knowing that the real life creators behind it are pulling mm-hmm. it off and you just can't replicate that I don't think No. on film because you have the cuts and you have you know that it's been through several processes of, of, of you know, reshoots and, and second, third, fourth takes to get everything right. So as much as it tries to match the energy, I think a film can never capture the magic of seeing something live and that feeling of danger when you you know that they're pulling this off in real time. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, totally. I think it, for me that kind of, where it does almost kind of, where it works it's at its strongest is in, is in that second act where you think the camera work starts getting more frantic mm. and frenetic. That's where it kind of starts. And only because it's doing things that are a bit more 
filmic in terms of like it's established little conflicts between the characters and is allowing conflicts to kind of pay off and you don't that's mm. quite a universal <coughs> it's established the like little bits that we know are supposed to go right in the first act when we see them in the dress rehearsal and then we get and then we're made privy to kind of like personal yeah. details that start to bubble up in this yeah, yeah. matinee uh, performance which it's is so good. again yeah. it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's seeing really this great. whole first act that we've already seen play out in the dress yeah. rehearsal and we're seeing it all from pretty much entirely from behind the stage mm-hmm. um and that is where this film's at its strongest me both in terms of when it actually finds a rhythm of yeah. comedy that's really working for itself and gets you quite involved in it yeah. and stops you thinking about what this would look like on stage because it feels like there's something a bit more tangibly character-based that's yeah like really like kind of getting irritable and yeah. frustrated and like it feels like it's a bottle shaking up and it yeah. escalates to the point where it's all just going to pop and it's that that particular sequence i think is it's great is, is uh, very strong. i think it that whole act two <laughs> i frankly think is a masterpiece <laughs> like the t- level of like it's timing and choreography yeah, yeah. and like mathematical knowledge you have to like do <laughs> yeah. to pull off writing like a play going wrong at the back but the play at the front still kind of yeah, working, still kind of How, working. Like, it, it's, it's dialogue free it's like a silent film the only dialogue yeah. you have is is on stage that you can't see it's so, so yeah. and like when and the you, when you the background action and yeah and when when the background action chimes with what should happen in front like when reeves goes oh my god and it's the exact yeah. moment <laughs> it's just oh it's so it's written that yeah that works so well because is the the camera's choreographed with the edit with the movement of the performers and it, that is the best marriage i think like you said of mm-hmm. the form and the adaptation yeah i would say that um, I the act two relies so much on like physical mm, comedy, yeah. and because all these actors have been in films for too long, they've forgotten that they can really move their bodies. <laughs> I would say that they're all like like good, but like I wanted you know like when you're like doing animation and you see the like mid frames between yeah, things yeah. moving and it's all like skew if in this like you are in a farce about a farce and. There's, this whole thing needs to be like camp and silly to the max at all points. <laughs> and I wanted all of them to turn it just up to 11 in act yeah. two. I was just like, oh my God, I want bigger, sillier movements from everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still great. And yeah. that, it is a testament. And the, uh, I, what I find so interesting is how do you, like, I went back and I found a script. I found a noises off script. Because mm. I was like, how do you like sit Film down? Stage script. Stage script. But I was like, how do you sit down and write that? Like, yeah, it's and it's just... written at two in two columns. Right. So right. on one column you've got um what's it called? Nothing on, which I think is such a good name for a sex <laughs> <Yeah>. bath. <laughs> Nothing on. And that's all going here. And then you have all of the stage directions and they kind of have links in between them. So it's like they and then they go off and then they enter here and then they go and then they off here. And you, so you can kind of track everyone's movements between the two columns. Oh, nice. It's, but it is like an absolute and it's like to the line. There's like stage direction so it's like he picks up the axe here then they say the line then you drop the axe and then the axe yeah. gets into this person's hand because they have to go on stage but they shouldn't have the axe oh no they're gonna go after this person and i would say <laughs> that all of the good farce setups pay off so well there's a couple of really good ones dropped in at what my favorite of the like setups is oh his 
whenever he talks <laughs> yeah. of violence, his nose starts to bleed. <laughs> yeah. and you're like, oh, that is going to be, that is going to happen at a really inopportune yeah. moment later. I just bet. <laughs> what, was, what was your favourite payoff? That's a good question. I I I I was sucking for the sardines. It's a pretty obvious <laughs> one. Well, actually, no. I say what it was. Um, what it was. There's a bit in the in Act One of the the first act of the film when Jonathan Ritter's ring down the stairs and he kind of stumbles. And I thought, oh, it's a really nice little performance note that he's done. He's kind of given it a little bit of character. But that in itself is foreshadowing for the like two or three further times that he falls down the stairs throughout <laughs> the film. Every time to worse degrees. Yeah. Always managing to just about... <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> I think that was my favourite one because it took a little thing that I thought was a little character quirk that he'd written in there. But no, that was, of course, part of the... Yeah, part of the whole. Really appreciate that. <laughs> I think for me, it's just the whole fact of Denholm Elliott's character being the fact that he's playing an aged, drunken character, and the fact they're not letting him drunk is maybe actually inhibiting his performance. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when he is drunk, he's still doing it fine. <laughs> yes. I also love the bit where Brooke she loses her contact lens backstage, and you've already seen from Act One that like when she loses a contact lens, it's an absolute disaster. She can't <laughs> yeah. see a thing, and then she gets pushed on stage. She's got to go on. She's got to meet her cue because she can't see it. She goes absolutely arse over tear over the sofa, and that. Fall. I was like, my God. Like, she threw her whole body, her, the whole force yeah. of herself against that sofa. And it is so good. Platform. I also just love the character detail of Brooke with the fact there's a point in the dress rehearsal where Michael Caine's like, now I know you're all used to that London improv stuff, but you've got to really stay to the script here. And she is literally the only one who manages yes. to stay to the yeah, script. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, no matter what goes wrong, for all the improv in the final version of the thing, she's, she's the one the that's still person. sticking to it. <laughs> that, that bit is... I didn't even clock that line. Yeah, It was funny enough without that, but that's a beautiful that was, happen, That's yeah. probably my favourite call. Oh, yeah, it's or... like she's the only one who's sticking to it. <laughs> But even when everyone else is like trying to ad lib their way around it, like going rock. So she's like, someone's walked onto stage and they're meant to be holding like a newspaper, but they're holding flowers or they're meant to be holding a dress and they're like, oh, well, I love this. These these flowors that you bought me. Oh my gosh. Did you buy me this this, doorknob? This this flower looks so comfortable to wear. Uh, And then Brooke like can't because she's so unscripted that she's just doing the lines as is and everyone else around her is like, please, honey, please work with us. Oh man, I mean, so that's a good little segue into who who is everyone's favourite performance in the film. Hmm. I suppose there's two layers to that because you got the performance of like the real life actor as the yeah. fictional actor, then you got the performance of the fictional actor as the fictional fictional character. I I did really like like particularly any moment where because you you're kind of talking about the way this stage script is constructed and how to the point it is, and there is kind of no wiggle room for movement and a lot of the kind of early comedy bits between Kane and the cast are when they're trying to be like but why the sardines why can't it be bananas why is that and he's just like because it is no it can't be no 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 just, it is what it is to the study with me and then it's just yeah and it's just the point where it's like his wife left him yeah way. yeah you just gotta give him a bit more motivation <laughs> I, and I think for like particularly those little moments where it's just like uh, like just a coddled actor just really wanting to be like please yeah. tell me so yeah. what his motivation is is Christopher Reeve so just like good. he's he's like yes everyone knows him as Superman yeah. but like 
this guy's a Juilliard trained actor yeah. who was very good at physical comedy and drama and he's shown that in a number of roles and it, I think he's he's re- he's a really sweet little part of this whole makeup here who's like quite hmm. like I'm, I know you were kind of saying to like that there's quite a lot of big names here I don't think he's his is a particular big ego at all despite being kind of the biggest feels very egoless <laughs> lovely Freddy <laughs> so good just needs a cuddle oh, yeah. thankfully he's in a troop of actors and he's getting too many cuddles and that seems to be one of the big problems yeah. he gets himself into trouble through cuddles I reckon the Freddy the is me life of the, a- of the actor here. I think one of the things that's so delicious about this story is how like it's I love I, I love a play about actors because mm. it's so nasty to them. This, this is <laughs> not a kind. This does not no, cast not actors in a kind light. And I really like. You've got all of the good like actor tropes. You got the boy really needs a cuddle. The man who cannot stop talking to about himself for the life of him. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't know anything. He just loves saying words. <laughs> then you've got like the kind of aged star. She likes everything the way she likes it. And she's a bit of a cougar. You've got the dumb blonde, <laughs> which I have to say, Brooke plays so well. She's so good at the doe-eyed. Like, yeah, absolutely. Nod, nod, nod. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm obsessed with. What? The bimbofication of Brooke. I'm here for it. <laughs> and the other one that I can't remember. Oh, the drunk. The, the drunk, old man. The drunk <laughs> old man. Drunk old man. Drunk old man. That's, you that's what you're like, like, Old age tales of yeah. British actors. Yeah. British like British Oliver Reed or, or you know, Alec, Richard Branson. Alan Guinness. Alan Guinness. Guinness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. Good, and they're good stereotypes because we all know an actor and they all are one of them. There's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting point you like bring up there because I don't one of the quotes I saw from Bogdanovich about it was like uh, talking about like comparing the characters in Texasville where they, he like can't he feels empathy and sympathy and interest in them but they're not people he knows but he said like about this he's like these are people I know are noises off they're the people I get along with the a- actors and the characters they play they are people I've grown up with I've been in show business since I was 15 and I really like actors I like show people and I was a bit like Oh, I'm not sure Ooh. you've quite seen the point here. <laughs> I don't I don't think this play likes actors at all. And more than that, that second act is t- like this man has written one of the hardest scripts for any actor to actually learn. Because you've got yeah. to learn the play the right way with loads of kind of extra added, then you've got to learn the play the wrong way with loads of extra stuff happening in the background that yeah. is all physical. So it's so tiring. And then you've got to do the third act, which is the play from the first act, but also wrong. So like how are you meant to learn all the lines in the right way yeah. as an actual actor doing the play? Like, this is a play about how horrible and self-obsessed actors are. They can't do anything right. And also, if you are an actor doing it, get out a terrible time. Like, I don't think he's, I think he's got the point at all. I think this is a man that was just like, oh, fuck these people. I do suspect, based on uh, the Bogdanovich retrospective that I've been part of, personally, uh, that he's not a man who's very good at perspective. <laughs> I think he's a man who tends to lose it quite easily and permanently. <laughs> Who's your favourite character? Oh, Reeves. I love him. I yeah. loved him so much. <laughs> but then again, like, yeah, for the reasons that you've stated, but I love Ritter as well because I haven't. Uh, yeah, big fan of John Ritter. What was the sitcom? Was it Eight Simple Rules? Eight Simple Rules. I watched that a lot when I, I don't. Was I hadn't younger. really seen much of his sitcom stuff, so I know of him as someone that a lot of American comedians love. Mm. I, this is the first time I'd really seen him out in full force, and it's just great to see him do it. Problem this. child? 
Oh, well, of course. I haven't seen that since I was about seven. So that's been a while. I'd yeah. say Julie Haggerty was my favourite. Oh, she was the kind of ever tired, always picked on stagehand, yeah. any job. Yeah. Like... Part of the love triangle that Michael Caine is involved in. Yeah. <laughs> 44 minutes in, I made a note saying, there's not been much Julie Haggard so far. I hope she's in more of it for Haggerty so far. I hope she's in more of it. And then thankfully in the second note, she's all over that. She thing. comes into yeah. force and she's so good at silent oh, rage. <laughs> silent, like rageful, oh. but also sad. That yeah. like face all kept into one. Oh, and she's so good at it. I felt she's, it every she's time. An all time. That I was also one of my favourite bits in the second act. Is when they're like going two minutes to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the other guy runs in. Tim and it, like is like oh, it's two minutes to go. No, they already did that. <laughs> that feels very airplane. There's a lot of yeah. Uh, air, in, in, yeah, she's it baked of, into that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the bit with the runner with the flowers too. Yeah. That was brilliant. The, 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 the diminishing flowers. Small, yeah, small, and then it becomes small, a cactus that ends up <laughs> in Michael Caine's arse twice. As well it should. No disrespect to Mr. Kane, who is what almost ninety, I think. Now he's certainly. Oh yeah, I meant it yeah, more for no. the character, not for. Look, not if Sir you Michael. are the kind of person <laughs> you want to, if you want to see a cactus go up Michael Caine's ass twice, then yeah. this is the movie for you. <laughs> You're gonna get that. He and has more. a lot of fun in this. He as well. does. He's- they all have a lot of fun, that's and that's no why it's so fun to watch. Like this is a group of really good comedic actors having a really good time performing a really good comedic play. That just happens to be filmed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do. I think uh, we can. Uh, as easy as as tempting as it is to clown on Bogdanovich for some of his more unsavory predilections, looking at those early four films, particularly What's Up Doc, which I feel like is quite a forebearer cinematically to this yeah, yeah it's a screwball throwback whereas this is an outright farce but screwball has a lot of farce in it but just tweaked for Screw. the cinematic medium yeah <laughs> that's like that's to me is a perfect screwball what's up doc yeah. whereas this i'm sure is a perfect stage farce but there is i think he's just very good with actors and he's very good at working with actors and like you were saying in this the choreography oh, yeah. is incredible he loves that in what's up doc <laughs> he is very very good at choreographing Streisand yeah. and O'Neill and everyone else and uh, Madeline Kahn and making them work with the uh, different locations and the edit and cutting back and forth yeah. and yeah, his comedy is a cinema. He, he really does, and it's sure. so funny to think that his first film is a sort of almost exploitation tinged thriller. His second film is like one of the most downbeat sort of nostalgia eviscerations mm. I've ever seen, and then you go straight from that to What's Up, Doc and yeah. Paper Moon, which are both very. There's like a bit of sadness in Paper Moon, but it's still a light, funny movie. Mm-hmm. He's very good at comedy. Yeah, I think he's he was a, like he's a self-proclaimed like mm-hmm. student of cinema as well. Like so much of his latter day career was spent as largely an historian. Mm, yeah. And, well, I think one of the last films he made was The Great Buster, which was Buster Keaton documentary that we watched during lockdown. That was great. Which speaks. That was to his last. Oh, credit, speaking I guess. of great. Fallers in life. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, man yeah. fell well. And that, uh, who better to learn a cinematic yeah. comedic language from yeah. than Buster Keaton? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, I guess Howard Hawks, who is the mm. guy who's bringing up babies, like the the Mount Rushmore screwball, I suppose. But he's yeah. also a guy who's famous for um, being a genre chameleon, which Bogdanovich seemed to be trying to emulate, at least in the first mm-hmm. chunk of his career. I haven't seen Between Paper Moon and this, so I can't really speak to yeah. how. The intervening years, mask work, is, but... I, mask is well regarded, but I never, I've never really liked. Yeah, mask. weird. 
(laughs) (laughs) So we've talked a lot about how this is an adaptation of a play is maybe where it's kind of its weakness lies. But can you see a version of this where they changed it up to be about the making of a film rather than the making of a play? I I had an idea. I thought, yeah, that that would be a good one. I think also... um, Something that I think is a hangover from the stage version of it is is the level of projection required on stage means that there's not much distinction between the the actors and the characters they play within the film. Yes, which when that that will work on stage, I guess. But then when it's in a film, that is all one level really. As much as I love them, there's not much modulation between the actors and the characters they're playing within the film. That's so I feel true. like they could be as broad as you like for the film within the film. But I think the actors playing the actors, the the actors, you know I what I mean. <laughs> the act, the actor characters. I feel like they, they could do with being a little bit just more film acty as because it's all stage acty in this film. All of it mm. is stage acty. Stage acty, you know. We're very technical. I believe that is the technical term. The technical but term. If there was more distinction between the two different types of performance in the film, I think that that would have been a start in itself. Mm. I've seen a version where Mrs. Clackett Dotty, played by Carol Burnett. Where, like, Mrs. Clackett, as you can tell by the name, is very, oh no, Miss Sardines! <laughs> um, where, but then when she broke character to become Dottie, yeah. she was like, hey, Jan, it's really fun, really <laughs> lovely to be here, everyone loves being part of the acting. And that, like, changed from watching this, like, like high drama acting yeah, yeah, royalty yeah. woman kind of then become this character was kind of part of the joke yeah i think my thing i feel like every time i've seen it there's been like another kind of layer added on top of the text and i think your job as a like director especially within comedy is to like find the jokes that you can add in between what's in the script Mm -hmm. and granted this is a very tight script with very little room for maneuver but i felt like what this was missing was the kind of like director's angle like what are the extra jokes that like because this is my vision that i'm adding on top of all of the jokes that are already in the script i guess having they try that with having them be american actors doing english accents which works to a point i guess works to a point the the performance distinction but it's still the same pitch yeah it's still the same pitch you are right and that gets a little lost yeah you've got to to expand on your but to jump on that you've got to justify making it a film you've got to justify it being in this medium otherwise what i could kind of see it working and maybe not in 1992 but now i could see it working as kind of like right you've got your social media intern in to do like film the documentary for the play that's eventually going to be on like the dvd so then it's kind of almost like a kind of backstage docudrama and you can then have all of that action and playing out and then you kind of write this extra character in and people are interacting with the camera because the camera is being held by a person who's also kind of in in the whole thing, yeah, I think that could have been like a fun filmic take on. Yeah, then you could add in extra jokes about like the fact that you're filming it, and I don't know, like there there just seemed like there is should like an extra yeah, <laughs> have spinal tapped it. What it put me in mind of weirdly because it couldn't be more of a, of a, of a genre differentiation. But have you ever seen or heard of One Cut of the Dead? I've heard of it. I've not seen Japanese it. sort of quote-unquote fan footage horror film from oh, It does not sound like my particular no, oeuvre, no, Josh. I don't want to say too much because the, the less you know about this film going in, the more effective it is. But the first like half an hour of, of it is a pretty shoddy pseudo-fan footage zombie movie. But then there is a, a pivot 
and it kind of it recontextualizes the first half hour as the film that a bunch of filmmakers have been trying to make and the second and third chunks of the film are the behind the scenes production parts Brilliant. of that That's first cool. shitty zombie film so you kind of see how you because you've seen the film and you know how things are supposed to go and the, so the the rest of the movie is seeing how they contort themselves to try and get things in the position that it was when you saw it in, in, the, in the first yeah so that's kind of that cool. so I am sorry because I have spoiled it a little bit now but I was aware that was the the joy of seeing it play out is, and that's kind of a really good filmic twist on this same because like the, the mm-hmm. second and third acts of Noises Off is essentially what one cut of the dead is yeah because like, you know how it should be and so it's like it's not scary and it's not anything so Great. you could definitely I'm going to watch it dig mm-hmm. it but yeah it's, it's, re- it's that's a really good way I think of of making that idea work for film. Mm. The mm. other the other option obviously is to go full f- go full cinematic. Absolutely be like, right, we're basing this on this script that we found, but we're absolutely going big and we're going to do this big cinematic movie. And I was thinking about like because movies do this so well. Movies are so good at making movies about making movies, and mm. I love watching movies about making movies. <laughs> yeah. There's so many good ones, but the best one, and I don't think you'll debate me on this, is Tropic Thunder. <laughs> and if you're going to do a movie about how. As a director, it is impossible to corral this in, like insane group of this insane troop of actors who don't work together and they've got to be in one scenario for like three months. If there's one film that does that or like yeah. perfectly, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not noises off. <laughs> but there's even that little fake making of with Tropic Thunder as well. Yes, showing them all losing their minds. Yeah. That's great. That's a great example. Yeah. Start like if this movie had started with a compilation of the trailers of other things these people had been in, I'd have been like that's the thing. It's like make it I can imagine this working even like in its own context if we like used the cinematic medium to like learn more about these um people. Like if it opened and it opens with such a weird Mike like Michael Caine's doing yeah. this like gritty, oh I'm a director and my life is woeful and I'm this is my last shot and you're like what a weird gritty <laughs> tone opener for what I know is going to be the silliest fucking fast I've ever seen like the silliest Running thing down the streets of New York yeah. spilling his heart to hobos it just, it makes I no believe s- it from there and it got much much worse <laughs> that's good <laughs> it makes no sense to me like I think you could open this with like all of them like preparing to go to this technical rehearsal in their mm. own like stereotypical ways yeah like Brooks coming back from like a kind of aerobics class and Belinda's having a good gossip with the gals and mm. um Dottie's in like a, a mansion or whatever and what's his face is having a big drink and Michael Caine is being a director and tying his lovely silk scarf yeah. on uh, and having a bit of a moan like you can convey all of that through the medium of like seeing things because it's a movie so you don't have to (laughs) montage with loads of stock footage of new york taxi cabs and then do a voiceover because i could watch that in a play (laughs) you have the one montage of the play getting progressively worse progressively less well received but then he voiceovers that anyway yeah Yeah, he voiceovers that anyway (laughs) yeah yeah because those are the kind of like and you'll probably be able to speak to this more. The biggest fundamental changes from the play I can gather are that is the framing device of the director mm. panicking that this is going to be a flop. 
<laughs> yeah, none. So in the play, it, it's just you start with all the sardines, and then the director will usually be on the side, or sometimes in the like the guy playing the director oh, I bet that's will be like in the audience and be like, no, no, so stop, 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 and you're like, oh my god, someone's near me, and I'm in a play, um, and then that's really fun. Uh, and unless audience members uh, telling them to stop, yeah, wow, that's wild. Can we all do that? Oh! <laughs> um, and it's so good. Um, but yeah, you don't have any of that kind of framing device. You don't know. Yeah. You don't like when you get to act two, you don't know that it's got like the dynamics have changed. They just trust that you'll pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, I do think, though, there is something in the like, Americanized version of it that you lose. And maybe it's just because we're watching it as a UK audience. But in the play, I think they, they, they're they not a big touring company. Like, it's very much coded as Amdram. Right, because the three right. places that they go to visit are like... Uh, I think like Avon upon Tyne. No, they start in Western Superman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they go to Avon upon Tyne, and then they end up in Stratford upon Lees. And that's <laughs> and in this one, like these actors are heading into like Broadway yeah. and beca- and on a broad like winning on a Broadway oh, yeah, they go stage. From, like, Iowa to Miami. Too. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe now is the time to share our thoughts and feelings about the ending. Mm. Yeah. So I guess the play ends with Act Three. Is you watch the play? It's gone horribly wrong. Everything's uh, gone absolutely to shit. Nothing's gone right in this play. The end. Ha ha ha. Isn't that funny? And then in the movie, they so they have this dreadful night and then they get to Broadway and Michael Caine's like, oh my God, is it ever going to go right? What am I going to do? I'm going to be a laughing stock. And then he peeks into the theatre and everyone's laughing and everything's gone to plan. Yippee, these actors, these silly it's actors, they finally did it. it and yeah. I don't think a single one of them earned it. Not a single one of them deserved to succeed. No. They're all terrible people who can't be professional for a single all second. Sh- they don't deserve to win. <laughs> they don't deserve good Broadway reviews. And bro- <laughs> do, do you know Bogdanovich's justification for doing this? No, tell me. He said, so he said, because, um, uh, Frayne contested the ending. He wasn't a fan yeah. of the happy ending, which I, I agree sucks. But um, he said that uh, Bogdanovich argued forcefully and intelligently back by saying that in essence, when you see the play on stage, it does effectively have a happy ending because after the play's finished, you see the actors come out and bow. So he wanted to kind of replicate that in the film by having it textually be a success. So I, I, I kind of understand to a degree yeah but it's it's not it's apples it's and oranges. a pretty it's not quite metaphor the same in theory yeah it just doesn't it, it cheapens it it was so weird much, for me as well because I, I read it in a completely different way and then read these comments from like that one i read out earlier about bogdanovich yeah how much he likes actors and gravitated towards mm. this and kind of being like oh that's weird that's not kind of how i read this to be portraying actors and then him reading that quote about what he said yeah. about his justification for the ending because when I was sat there and watched it for the first time I was reading it more as like a satire of of like just p- pumping more hot air into these big egos yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. personalities who are just like oh we've done it it's the magic of theatre it's we, we've completed the we've done the miracle like Michael Caine even said something yeah, like that some, some, you, some you always like count on the miracle you can never like you you always got to have the miracle because he, um, he screw he like JD from Scrubs but I I Here's I the thing don't know about if it's just because I just chose to read it as such as it being a bit more yeah critical of the kind of 
um, behavior of kind of prima donna actors and yeah. how I thought the ending was kind of fueling that reading by being like they're completely conceited again by believing that this just because this one performance has gone very well yeah <laughs> they're gonna do fine <laughs> so... it's the rose tinted glasses of it all it's like a, now yeah. you look back and you're like oh well all of that drama helped us get to where we are brilliant and look at how talented wonderful yeah. we are yeah. and then in my mind they do it again the next night and it's a complete disaster. That <laughs> so is yeah, what is they haven't learned anything. Head. Yeah, that's, that's what's your happening. high canon. I think <laughs> with, with you saying that in the English, in the original version, it's uh, it's like a little provincial English touring company. It's like an Amdram thing. Mm. That makes the egoism of it all so much funnier. So much funnier. And it makes it so much more vicious in its, in its sort of satire of actors. And that is to a degree, I mean, I, I, I had a much more literal, much, much like Freddie, bless him, a more literal-minded reading of the way the film ends, in that it's oh, every, it was all worth it. The show must go on. Hoo-ha, it's all good and everything. Um, but maybe I don't know. In your perspective, that does chime more with the the DNA material. of the play. Yeah, yeah, it seems to. But it, it does. It does. It does. The more we dig into this, the more it does feel like the heart of the play is slightly at odds with what Bogdanovich saw in the play. Yeah. I think so. As good as, but I think it's too good, good of a heart is, for it to be completely lost. Sure, no. <laughs> and, and, and as good as he is at dramatising. Because he's like, if he directed it on the stage, I think it'd be a, a, you know. And I think this is, I do think this is as good as a film of this probably could be in its... Yeah, I'm trying to think how, how you would Unless you make it. <laughs> changes, this is probably as good as the film was off could be. I quite like the concept of doing it like you're a documentary film crew that's gone to document the Yeah, yeah God, a the spinal to US, uh, um, translation over. <laughs> and then you could really like, yeah. then you could have like a whole metatextual part about a writer really like freaking out over the Americanization of yeah. this English screenplay. Yeah, like, like cast, <laughs> cast someone in it to play Michael Frayne. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> make, make it a story about, like, Michael Frayne watching a director. Daniel Radcliffe is Michael Frayne. Daniel, <laughs> oh. Yes. Oh, Danny boy. What? And get the Lonely Island to produce it. <laughs> I, I just have never, like... I... I like I've heard, like Daniel Radcliffe could elicit a lot of responses. I just didn't. I like just didn't expect. Oh, Danny boy! Like I just. That's that was just new for me. Oh, but no. That sort of to, to make a little bit of a tangential leap from what you were saying. The English to American adaptation makes me think of like The Office. The Office, which takes me to extras, which has a connection to this, because I feel like to me. Nothing on was meant to be a bit of a like a hoary, a, a bit of a shitty farce, but that in itself kind of walks um, a tightrope because for the first half hour of the film, forty minutes or so, that's all you see. So it needs yeah. to be good enough to keep you entertained, but sort of naff enough that you are aware that the film is aware that it's not good. Which is a similar line that the sitcom in Extras. When the whistle blows, walks. It's got to be kind of funny enough on its own terms to sustain your interest, but kind of, again, like naff enough and guilty of enough of the cliches that you are aware that the meta piece is aware of what it is. Mm. And I think nothing on walked a very good line because it, it it's it is like a it it is a very very naff was the right word naff it's fishy really... to use your word <laughs> the, but, but it's it's so, so well done <laughs> it, it works as a thing 
Yeah. But you're also very much aware of how much the noises off is aware of what it is. Like nothing on as a farce feels like a a, a satire of a farce. Mm. So it's like I yeah, feel exactly, yeah. I feel like and I mean, this is purely vibrational. I've not fact checked a single thing I'm about to say. I feel like there was a time where like farces were big. Farces are no longer big. You don't like get a fast that often these days. 60s, 70s? Yeah, it just yeah. feels yeah. like, that yeah. feels like fast territory to me. It does, it does. And it feels like farces were big and they were so big that it started the thing where, you know, you have a few good ones and then everyone goes, oh, this is good. Everyone, get your mediocre writers. Mm. They're all doing farces. Carbon copy this. And we're <laughs> just, do, it's like when um, Game of Thrones came out and everyone tried to do like a Game of Thrones thing. Yeah. Britannia, Sky's Britannia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Skies Britannia. Did you think we'd be mentioning that on this podcast? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, that has the same energy that like nothing on has in that it's like a satire of all of those kind of like mid-level farces where everyone was just writing and churning them out with the it? same sex jokes. Yeah, the yeah. Pants falling down. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly the carry-on enterprise, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Literally That's made, what I was they made of. the banner to literally do that, just change out the last word yeah. and that changes all the costumes and setting yeah. to the point where you can just regurgitate the jokes but it's different yeah because it's carry on but you could see like, carry on like Patrick, nothing on cetera, doctor nothing on camper <laughs> yeah you could see that being a yeah yeah you franchise. could definitely see a franchise yeah. nothing yeah. on so it's a really it's, it's a tightrope walk that i'll never not appreciate again when the whistle blows i think it's a really good example of a, a shit comp to use like Stephen merchant's parlance that is like guilty of all the sins that it's critiquing, but also a very good example of, yeah. <laughs> of like the thing. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to call attention to what a because like again, like it puckles the mind to think about it. So you've got you've got that metatextual level. Then you've got what we talked about earlier, where it needs to work in like three different ways as a thing that goes right, as a thing that's barely going right, and as a thing that goes horribly wrong. But you know how wrong it's going. There's just yeah. How does someone write this? Oh, I know. It is absolutely mad. And I think it, that, in, in essence, kind of gets to the heart of what slightly doesn't kind of works against the film's favour is because it's such a well, finely mm. tuned machine on stage and they translate it to screen, there's almost the, there's a hesitation there to want to change that much of it yeah. because of yeah. how much it's heralded as Because it's so tight. It's a tight yeah. script. What do you, like, well, if you start pulling pins out of it. Is, yeah. You just need to take a step back and I think just look at what the material is and stay stay true to kind of the essence of it. Like we've kind That's of what any adaptation like, is, isn't it? Like, you, yeah. A masterpiece in one form, you can't. It's why video game adaptations fail so much because no one really knows you can't what the really recreate is. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's arbitrary. You inherently can't recreate. No, it. <laughs> you've got to figure out. It's, and it's why the high fidelity film, I think, is such a good example because it changes so much, like setting a lot of the character, a lot of the sort of time it's based in. Mm. But it, get, it gets to the essence of that yeah. book so well that it's probably the. I want to say the best, but it's a, it's a really good example mm. of adaptation. And I think it's something like. I think you brought it up when we were discussing this film before, um, where the producer starts out as mm, Mel Brooks' yeah, calling yeah. card in the 60s, becomes a smash Broadway musical yeah. later on down the line in the 90s, <laughs> yeah. and then they go to make that again into a film in the noughties, and it just doesn't 
work quite yeah. as well. It's like you've put it through Google Translate a few times. Like, what is so much? It's Baudrillard's simulacrum, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that's what it is. That's what the Matthew Broderick Nathan Lane movie <laughs> version is. That's the simulacrum of Mel yeah. Brooks's original. And the producers. only parts of that, are, like, I, I do still quite like the musical, but it's only because I quite like some songs in the musical. Mm. And but then again, some of the better songs that I like from the musical are still there in the original. Gene Wilder one from the 60s. It's a weird one. And we're going to go through this prism again mm. in many Amblin years' time when we go for, <laughs> for the, uh, the the new Colour Purple, which is an adaptation of the Broadway musical of the Colour Purple, which is it's an adaptation of the thing. film, which is an adaptation yeah. of a book. So yeah. that's going to go Woo! for even more prisms. What do you make of that, Baudrillard? <laughs> wow. You know, I feel like people say this a lot. They go, they're not making new films anymore. <laughs> Turns out they've not been making new films for longer than we thought. <laughs> they've never made new films. Everything's an adaptation. <laughs> At least they tried to make this one. <laughs> yeah. They did try. And I, I do and I do think it's a worthy effort and I did enjoy I think it, it a lot. Is. Yes. Well, it's certainly a really great accessible way to watch the play noises off. Yeah. Yeah. Until it's the 40th anniversary yeah. version. It could never have been... October 2022. <laughs> never... Give us some comps, please. <laughs> I wonder who's actually... I don't know yet. I, it's, a fear to, it's a fear to tour, so it's not going to be stuck in one theatre for too long. Okay. I can't remember what I was going to say now. I talked Sorry. over me too oh, no. <laughs> I was I was passionate. I, I know I was passionate about it, but it's gone. Adaptations. Adaptations. No, gone. It's gone forever. Gateway to the play. Yeah, it's it's as a thing in itself. It's like a, a good way for someone to watch the play without actually watching the play. No, it's gone forever. <laughs> what I did notice, though, and we should bring this up. Speaking of bad oh, adaptations, baby. there is a lovely little ominous poster in the backstage of um, Noises Off. So they're performing this, and everything's going wrong. And then right in the background, you go, oh, "What's that?" And that, my friends, is a poster for. Cats. Oh no, it's not. Yeah, there's a, 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 a future Amblin, a future oh, Amblin production. God, a um, I mean that is, and we'll just have to speak about it. And really, because I could talk about it for four years, so we're going to do a two-minute cap. That is an example of going too cinematic. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you, they they took that so far away from a play and an unadaptable another unadaptable piece but of theatre but also a bad piece of theatre <laughs> that is a thing that shouldn't exist in any form no we disagree I, I, like I don't hate it as a musical but like and actually do I hate it as a film I don't hate that it exists how many times have no, you no don't, don't ask me that tell the listeners how many times you've tell, seen it tell them now the so cinema. then we'll ask you again when we do the Cats episode in it like two, yeah. three years' time, the and thing. then we'll see how many more you've tallied up. Okay, so <laughs> here, here's a fun little game for you. Do you think that I saw cats in a cinema more or less times than I've seen Noises Off as a play? <laughs> right, I think in. I know the answer. Are you asking? A, oh, I thought you were asking oh, do you? Because I'm having a good guess. <laughs> You're actually more likely to be able to remember how many times I've seen it than me. I think it's the same. Oh. I was going to say the same amount of times. Oh, I thought it was three. I think I've seen it four times. <laughs> but that may just be like, because after three, it just imprints in your mind so I much. I think you've seen you think... it four times in total, but three times in this. And I don't mean to speak to your 
memory bad. No, but you do remember things like this more than <laughs> I saw it with you at Cineworld and with yeah. you, Andy, as well. And that was your second time, Emily. Then you, you saw it, it again at the Prince Charles. But you had, you had seen it already when you saw it again with us. Yeah. Mm. So and I've seen, seen I've seen three cinemas and one ho- and one home viewing. <laughs> do you own it on on physical media? Because we're big proponents of physical media here at Rambling. Uh, unless Andy's bought it for me no I don't and would Andy bring such an abomination into the house I'm not sure well I might do I mean (laughs) gotta cover it somehow but yeah that I yeah that I would say actually has quite a lot of similar themes to uh, Noises Off that is a piece of (laughs) theatre that everyone said that is unadaptable as a film why would you do that someone took a good go at it didn't quite work out I would say Noises Off works out so much better Mm. And so so and we'll much talk better. about it in the in the episode but the the reason it's in the background is because they were in development in it <gasps> oh damn oh as an animated movie at Amblination. which is probably what it should have been right probably <laughs> i mean we've got to guess i, I know for we a fact there, that right. our cats episode is going to be absolute carnage <laughs> so we've got to get this <laughs> this in there. um but no to to i mean my, my kind of uh final Musings. Is that, I haven't seen this before. I wasn't aware of it at all. I didn't know what it was. Yep. Uh, you said it was a farce, and you're a big fan, Emily. Um, as uh, I, I, it's hard to really say. I really enjoyed the experience of watching the film. I can't speak to how good of a film it is, or how good of a film adaptation of the play is. But Noises Off is so good. Noises Off the play is so good that it forces its way through and I had a wonderful time watching this yeah. and I would recommend it yeah, and I will watch it again <laughs> and, I, and the, again it's just like the cast is so good and actually another point is so many of them are styled after Bogdanovich didn't you notice yeah. <laughs> so many of the so men are made to look like <laughs> not crevasses <laughs> so many cravats and thick rim spectacles yeah. and like comb over comb over <laughs> Michael Caine in particular. So, in yes. Particular. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I would... This is the most I've enjoyed one of our films on this podcast for a long time. So, I'm very pleased to... Better have... than five all? I wish I could step on five all and feel his spine break under my toes. <laughs> I was going to say nice thing and he put five all in my head and I got angry again. <laughs> I didn't realise it was so instantaneous. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll refrain. I'm hot! I'm hot! I'm coming hot! Uh, say a nice thing, Josh. Uh, noise is off, great. Also, um, uh, What's Up Doc and Paper Moon and Last Picture Show and Targets, but particularly the first two. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm going to go and watch definitely What's Up Doc and I've forgotten everything you said about Paper Moon, but I'll tell it's you what a, it's got It's got a little 10-year-old girl who's a criminal and smokes cigarettes. Okay, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Uh, great, okay, so I'll be watching those two. And I also, I would also recommend Noises Off yeah. because, as I say, like... All of its failings take it from like a five star film to a three star film. Exactly, exactly. Because it's got, it was always going to be a three star film because it's based on something that's a five star. So you can only really fuck that up so much. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the bad it reviews could have been a bigger train wreck. Yeah, like the bad the, reviews are ridiculous. Some were like hailing it as like I can't remember who it was now. I think it was someone who used to write for who was a, a SES for the New Yorker, but I can't remember his name. But at the time, compared, like, say... Michael Strago. It might have been him, but then... If you're he looking called it impossible way, to watch. There, there's another guy who called, like, saying like saying how it's the, one of the best plays and one of the worst films of all time. 
and like, no. and that is extreme. Uh, and I understand how, because I think even if you haven't seen the players, I think me and Josh have kind of attested to, you can see why it doesn't, re- what what isn't working on screen and what would work on stage. But I think in terms of delivering something that is manages to capture some essence of the spirit of chaos of the play, I yeah. think there are pockets in particular in that second act that really nail it. Mm-hmm. And again, like you were saying, the cast is a the cast is bringing a lot of energy, and I think that is why a lot of this papers over a lot of the kind of for sure bumps and along the way yeah, totally. of, that, of that transition from stage to screen. But I do think it's too faithful, and there is a better way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There's a lot you can hide if you create an atmosphere of like gleeful unadulterated chaos mm-hmm. is one of my favorite states of being so i can <laughs> i can i can forgive a lot if a film is is providing that i'm like i don't really care how you're doing it i'm having fun yeah. having yeah. fun i'm living my dream yeah you're gonna love what's up doc also um the final word of, of, of pure earnestness yes. from the rambling boys he was a problematic guy wasn't perfect, but he was a lover of film, made mm-hmm. some very, very great films. To Peter Bogdanovich, we shall miss you. Cinema is pouring I, without you. I enjoyed your I enjoyed you talking about films and documentaries a lot mm-hmm. and it is hard to take away how how good that kind of one, two, three hit of last pitch show, What's that Duck and Paper Moon is. Yeah. So. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Clink. <laughs> It's like the band playing on as the Titanic sank. Touchstone Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present a Peter Bogdanovich picture. Is it a party? Noises off. I've worked with a lot of directors, but I've never met one who is so totally and absolutely... I don't know. Beautifully put, Gary. Ah, I think that does just about... Unless there's any other final thoughts or words from you, I think that's all quite a nice little roundup of uh, our noises off thoughts um unfortunately we have no tweets or messages to share <laughs> no one had here. anything to say about <laughs> one of our chief contributors is actually on the episode today so. <laughs> <laughs> so i've alas. emailed once <laughs> <laughs> I'm i was cool. so grateful for that email <laughs> I, I, I cool. like I i've only done one I, that you were my first ever email into a podcast <laughs> i've never emailed we'll into a that. podcast before I don't think I have, you know. <laughs> have you ever emailed into a podcast? Someone's emailed about me into a podcast, and that is huge. And Rose Matafeo said your name. Yes. <laughs> um, but all I can say is thank you very much for joining us for Noises Off, Emily. It was an absolute pleasure to be involved from so- to <laughs> involved in something that I usually have to listen through the door to. <laughs> Do you think the listeners can tell when we're all in the room together versus when we're all I remote? Think so. I think so. <laughs> What do you think it was today, guys? Write <laughs> <laughs> in at ramblin'baddamblin' at gmail.com. Or tweet us at ramblin'amblin'. Don't write in about that. Only write in if you've got something more interesting to say. <laughs> Come on. Uh, we would particularly like to hear from you if you have any thoughts about our next film. It's uh, another one that I've never heard of before. It's a real dad by the sounds <laughs> of it. <laughs> It's our first film of 1990. Oh, yeah. This is Noises Off, 1992. It's oh, yeah. the only film. Year of my birth. Joshua Glenn's birth year. 
I'm happy with that. I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, and our next film is the first film from 1993, which is quite a big Your year. Your year. Indeed. It's quite a big year for Hamblin, but we're not getting to one of the big boys yet. We're getting to a far off place. A film director. Yeah, but what's it? <laughs> a far off place starring a young Reese Witherspoon and directed by Mikhail Solomon, who, was, who previously shot and lensed. Uh, arachnophobia and, and always so he's got got some good looking am- picture pe- pedigree else, yeah. in here um, if you would like to watch Disney's A Far Off Place a lot, along with us it's not on Disney Plus for whatever reason <laughs> but you can find it um, to rent or buy digitally on Amazon Google Play YouTube Arakuten TV yeah! <laughs> makes me melt Anyway, um, if you have any thought, yeah. What's the premise of this film? Can you What's give me a little, like, one, one, two, one, two sentences? Uh, two strangers must dis- discover courage and strength when they begin a journey across a treacherous African desert. Hmm. Okay, I will watch the first 20 minutes. Starring Reese Witherspoon <laughs> and other white people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Wait, how old are the people and main characters and their children? Reese Witherspoon must have been a child in this, yeah. surely. Yeah, she'd be a little young. young I was going to say, I'll watch it if it looks like they're going to kiss, but <laughs> I don't want her to kiss anyone if she's only 10. Um, well, they they make friends with an ex with a native Bushman along the way. Okay. And become a child. Sure, that'll be well handled. <laughs> if you've got any thoughts on the film, tweet us at Ramblin Amblin on Twitter or email. Let me take that again. If you've got any thoughts, if you've got any thoughts, no, it's off. <laughs> keep it all in uh, if you want uh, to email us. Then start, do so. Start again. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got any thoughts on the film A Far Off Place, which I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to do. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> if you've got any thoughts on the film, which I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to share, then do tweet us at Ramblin' Amblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And whilst you're there, give us a like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review telling us if E.T. or The Land Before Time makes you cry. Oh, that's a new <laughs> thing, isn't it? Before time? Did you watch Land Before Time, Emily? Yes. Did it make you cry? I can't remember. I've not watched it as an adult because why would I? Um, For the podcast, because I'm sure you're watching along with us. Like, <laughs> I'm only watching the ones that I want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll watch the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll find something else to do while Adley's watching the other ones. Will I watch, what's it called? What are we doing next? Far Off Place. <sighs> it doesn't look likely, Josh. <laughs> I, might, looks, I might not watch it myself. <laughs> <laughs> looks like I might find something else to do. Um, watch uh, watch Paper Moon. Or watch I'll it. give it 10 minutes, Josh. I'll give it yeah. 10 minutes. Anyway, I think we should all say goodbye with our best Michael Kine impersonations. That's not my best. That's that wasn't bad, though. Oh, it's pretty good. More nasally than I can do, for sure. I suppose that's more uh, young Michael Kane. Well, mine is Michael. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye! <laughs> Goodbye! Very nice podcast! That's my Michael Caine impression. Hope you liked it. Yes, first blood, blood doors off. I really like being in this film. <laughs> Hello, it's me, Alfie! <laughs> Alfie? You remember the film Alfie? I do! Yeah. <laughs> That's his catchphrase. No one, <laughs> no one spoke to me about Alfie in some years. 
Is that um, your favourite Michael Caine? Yeah. Alfie? I've never seen it, actually. <laughs> so we'll do something that we can put in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope you do join us for a far-off place, and we hope you have enjoyed your time here with us uh, discussing all about Peter Bogdanovich's Noises Off. I have been Andy Godian. I have been Joshua Glenn. And I've been here also. <laughs> <laughs> and all together we've been rambling, ambling, all about noises off. Please join us again next time for a far off place. Until then, take care. We love you. Goodbye. Very good. Chaos. <laughs>